my name is Brian Martin and you are listening to Season 2, Episode 9 of the Running Technique Tips Podcast, the season where we're talking all things 3 and 5K training. And I'm now joined by my co-host Lisa Biffin, who was running a 5K last time Last time we were talking. How did that go, Lisa? Oh, dear. Well, there were some positives and some very serious negatives. <laughs> and I had my first DNF in quite a while. I'll try and keep it as, as above board as possible. But <laughs> it sounds like you're still you're still cursed by this 5K demon. You haven't quite managed to get rid of it yet. Uh, I don't. I think my body just went into shock. But no, I, do you know, I had some stomach issues and you know there's there's all these famous pictures that have gone around with you know olympians and people who push through their stomach issues and just you know continue running and things and bodily functions just flow out from them (laughs) i I call that a loss of personal (laughs) dignity (laughs) so i am not in that category where uh, the race meant that much to me and i was more than happy to step off the track so that my pride and my dignity is very much still intact. That's excellent. You, you definitely don't want to end up on an Instagram photo oh, with, and do, <laughs> with a I loss think, of personal dignity. And the worst thing was because I had, look, I had such a good laugh about it afterwards and uh, we had quite a big group of runners from my club and they were all, you know, first of all worried, you know, injury or something. And when I was like, oh, my stomach was a little bit upset and, you know, everyone burst out laughing and they said, oh, lucky because it was being live streamed and you, mm. you don't want to be the person that is live streamed with, you know, a loss of bodily fluids happening in front of whoever's watching. So it was much easier to step off the track and (laughs) sort that out rather than run through it. Very good. Well done. Well, I was watching on the live stream, so I was wondering what what happened to you um, (laughs) because I was listening to the commentary, which was really interesting, and the commentators were talking about this train of athletics, East athletes led by Lisa Biffin and how they were so well-paced and well-coached and they were going to chew up the other runners. And it it looked like that was what was going to happen and then Lisa disappeared. (laughs) Well, maybe I just acted as a bit of a pacer because the two girls who I was pacing around both ran pretty big PBs and uh, they actually did chase, um, chew up nearly everybody except the, the, the one girl. So uh, that, was a, that was a positive and I actually quite like pacing, to be honest. So I, uh, I enjoyed that, but I was feeling amazing. And I think this was probably the biggest disappointment for me is that, you know, I went in, I was feeling really good, running around, hitting the splits. I think I was a little bit off my, 340s I was running more around 342s but you know I would have been equally as happy to have run that as well and the body just didn't cooperate so it was a solid hit out for about 2.7 k's and then uh, things started to fall apart a little bit but look you know all in all, really positive that was just literally hitting those laps. And it was actually really nice having that live stream because I could go back and watch it afterwards and just really look at technique, I guess like you did in that time trial, but, you know, in a, in a race environment where you're not you're probably not really thinking that much about technique. Well, you might, but I sometimes don't. It's more around, you know, hitting splits, how you're feeling, getting through those times where it's not going that well, and then seeing what your technique's actually doing. So I got some good tips on that. Yeah, that's good. And uh, I remember we were talking last time about, you know, mental cues and little mantras and that kind of thing. Was there anything that you were doing mentally apart apart from um, (laughs) thinking about avoiding (laughs) – an unfortunate situation. 
Oh, dear. Um, do you know what? Not really. I, I, I've had a bit of a habit of overstriding, which we've spoken about a bit. So I was quite conscious of trying to focus on landing, not under my body, but you know, closer to my body because my right leg mm-hmm. does land a little bit in front. But it was quite interesting from seeing that footage that I still seem a bit floaty in the air. And so you and I spoke about this afterwards and so you mentioned, well, maybe think about pushing into the ground and driving up. And it's funny when you said that because that's not at all how I was thinking. And when I started to think about those cues, actually the next day when I went for a run, it made complete sense. I felt my style change and I was actually running a bit too quick in some instances. Mm. But I had also said to you that I was really tired changing that because it really engages your glutes a lot more, which is obviously a good thing, but maybe not a great thing to try in a 18K long run the day after. (laughs) Definitely not. And I was a bit apprehensive about um, making that suggestion because I thought, oh, you're going pretty well. I don't want to kind of mess you up. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, I'm definitely going to take that cue into uh, the run that I'm potentially doing tomorrow. It's another 5K. and, And I really want to think about that when you get tired because, you know, you know, everyone gets tired throughout a race and I think 5K is one of those ones that it really hits you hard um, is to focus on those little cues. So that's going to be my cue for tomorrow. Excellent. Maybe give me a little bit more detail of how that, that first part of that race played out. But today we're going to be talking technique a little bit because I did manage to catch up with Keith Bateman and he's obviously a, a notable running technique coach as well as a Masters world record holder. He holds world world record, records for the 55 plus age group. Um, and one of those is over 10K, which is under 32 minutes, which is pretty amazing. That is lying. Mm, and he's got some pretty interesting thoughts about technique as well. I, I think you've had a chance to have a, had a listen to, to Keith. Yeah. What did you take out of that? Yeah. So uh, I think if anyone wants to, you know, really meddle with their technique, by all means, you know, have a listen. Um, I mean, Keith really loves his barefoot running and he's, you know, really quite passionate about not only like changing the technique, but the science behind it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not just someone who's thinks this is how you should run. He's actually taken it to that next level, gone and read lots of reports. I think he even, didn't he visit, he's from the UK, so I think he had some connections at a university. Um, possibly, possibly. In the UK yeah. and so has, it came across as though he'd validated a lot of his thoughts in, you know, with science and, and findings and reports, So, which was a nice thing to hear. He's definitely got a, uh, a fairly unique method of, coaching around his running technique i'd have to say um that would be be my takeaway and yeah it's good to have that kind of different viewpoint and perspective and as we we had the sort of discussion and interview there are a couple of things in there like his focus on getting your body well aligned and that that sort of thing which which really kind of yeah it made me sort of think a little bit about how i was how i was running and we obviously had that lesson with with keith um God, when was that now? That was probably Gosh, almost, was, almost a couple of months ago. Yeah, before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I actually, he had a really good point on cadence, which I know that we've spoken about mm. before, which I think listeners will, will hopefully get a bit out of that too. I thought that his, even his example that he used on his, on himself was really quite good as to not get so obsessed on cadence or to use it in its relative 
you know, mm-hmm. how it needs to be. You know, you're not going to be jogging, uh, you know, six minute Ks with 180 cadence. It, it really needs to be put into some context. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yes, definitely. And yeah, the listeners can have a, have a work through the conversation. But yeah, there's a number of things like cadence that sort of Keith, in, from his perspective, sees those as symptomatic or things that are consequences of making the adjustments and in terms of the way that he likes to coach technique as well. So that's kind of like interesting because you can get into those circular chicken and egg arguments about <laughs> where do you do you intervene with this thing or is, is, is the measurement of that thing a sign that something else is working or that something else has changed? And yeah, there's probably a lot of different perspectives and debate about which way you can go with that. But yeah, Keith's got a, a fairly unique way of approaching it and it's obviously working working for him in his coaching practice and with a number of the athletes that he's been helping out. So yeah, hard to argue. If something's working for you, mm. um, then by all means go for it. So mm. yeah, I think listeners will get a lot out of that, that interview, which will follow on from our little discussion today so tell me tell me a little bit about a little bit more about this this race before you pulled out so you, you're ticking <laughs> off ticking off those um splits nice and evenly was everything else going all right everything felt amazing so it was it was actually a very humid night which has just been the case of sydney recently and it was a really good bunch of i guess of runners so i was in the b races i had mentioned and went out conservatively well actually I went it in the pace that I should have so I ran a, a 44 second first or nearly a 45 second um, first 200 I was nearly last uh, not surprised there <laughs> I did know that there were some young ladies that took off very very quickly <laughs> I think they took off at about 17 minute pace and yes. probably ended up not even breaking 19 minutes from, oh, from memory I don't even think some of them broke 20 minutes so yes. they definitely went out too hard but then I ticked off uh, an 88 a 90 an 88 a 90 a 91 and was just feeling really comfortable and was just you know staying relaxed and as I said you know I had the the two girls from my club and I was more than happy to pace around and I had said to them look you know jump in behind me because a a couple of them aren't fabulous at pacing they tend to go out a bit hard as well and then at around the sort of just over the 2k mark so maybe two and a half k's my stomach started to do this glugging like it was just a barrel of water and someone was shaking it and I just remember thinking oh no (laughs) we can we can get through this so I started to slow then because it was interesting I stopped focusing on the race and and how I was feeling and was focusing on my stomach and then I went to 92 seconds and then the following lap it was a 94 and uh, I stepped off because I just as I said I wanted to keep my pride intact but um, yes I made it to 3k Uh, I hit 3k at 11 21 so I think that was around 345 pace in the end so if I had have continued on that would have been I think an 1845 and you know what even if I had finished in that I would have been ecstatic. You might have won the race. <laughs> you might have won the race, I reckon, if you, if you uh, kept going at that pace. Well, one of my teammates who did continue on that I was pacing, she did continue on. She ran an 18.41 and finished yep. second by only, I think, five seconds. Um, wow, so go. she mowed down pretty much everybody, which, you know, I imagine I hopefully would have been in a similar boat. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, I'm going to have another go tomorrow, but feeling – feeling really good. Do you know what though? I'm still lacking like a change of speed and I'm in a bit of two minds of this because I'm not really focusing. 
heavily on the track, like I've still got those longer distance goals. But I'm really struggling with being able to do both, like get a change of speed, but keep sort of the Ks up. Like, do you really struggle with that too? A little bit. I guess with the approach that I've sort of been following and the one that I followed last time, most of the training was either sort of tempo-based work, so more your sort of 10, 15K race pace or mile pace reps. So I was I felt like I was getting enough speed stimulus out of those mile pace reps because when I was sort of running those quicker uh, sub-18 5Ks, I was doing doing those mile pace reps at about sort of five-minute 1,500-metre pace, which meant, you know, 80-second, yeah, okay. 400 laps. So I was doing those at least, you know, four or five seconds per 400 metres faster mm. um, than actual 5K race pace. So that probably did give me, I think, enough speed stimulus. And I did quite a few of those reps up hills from memory. So, yeah, sort of doing doing some of that rep pace sort of stuff up some hills I felt probably did give me enough speed. But, you know, having said that, and you're talking about changing of pace, really the goal, goal unless you're in a sort of, some sort of championship race, is to just go out there and run evenly. Yeah, so, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not really a big need for it, is there, given no, that the, so, the laps were pretty much identical. That's right. So maybe not so much about changing pace, but just making sure that your race pace feels quite comfortable yeah. by having done enough under-distance type of either racing or training so that when you do lock into your 5k pace it feels quite comfortable yeah but look feeling very strong which has given me a lot of confidence thinking about like 10ks and half marathons I think probably what mentally I'm struggling with is how you know how I used to train so I would be training Mm. running maybe 74 to 75 second 400 reps whereas you know now I'm going around in 85 seconds, which correlates perfectly to my 18-minute, yes. <laughs> sub-18-minute 5K, I think it's, I've probably got a bit of a personal mental block on it, just thinking, oh, gosh, I haven't got that change of pace when realistically it wasn't really doing me much use anyway, was it? <laughs> no, correct. Yeah, that's right. It does you absolutely no use at all if you've blown up at three kilometre mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So anyway, look, not all – actually, I've got a lot of positives out of it, to be honest, more than yeah. more than negatives. So, yeah, f- feeling feeling quite good and uh, onwards and upwards, as they say. <laughs> Excellent. And any, any sort of training highlights from the last week? Um, oh, no. That you wanted to mention? Not at all, but I've actually followed a bit of your advice this week. Um, that sounds dangerous. Yeah, I know, but it's been it's been good advice. You know, you're really focusing on this. How are you feeling? You know, stress levels, uh, listening to your body as opposed to just continuing to push out the training. And I've just had a shocker of a week. You know, children starting primary school, juggling personal sports, children's sports, enormous workload. And I actually got to train or Wednesday, I just was exhausted. I had mentioned to you and you said, don't run. So I didn't run. (laughs) And then Thursday, I went to training and all I did was four by 300s. And I was just, you know, when the, the effort is just too hard. Yeah. So the effort was just too hard. You know, I was running 61, 62, 61, 64, and it was actually off a jog 200. So it was 2K mm. continual worth of work. So it, I'm not going to say that they were slow, but no. it was just feeling all too hard. So I actually haven't gone back to look at my heart rate. I should because it just was feeling not great. 
And then I had Friday off. Um, today, Saturday, I'm having today off. And after having 12 hours sleep last night and <laughs> fell asleep in the car for an hour, not driving, I was stationary <laughs> yesterday, I'm actually starting to feel a lot better. So yeah, like it's an, an amazing one. And I know I've said it before, I, we definitely need to do an episode on stress and what actually does happen to your body. But, you know, I got to the point yesterday where just the littlest things, you know, like my phone would ring and someone would want something for me and I'd just feel myself becoming overwhelmed and thinking I'm just going to burst into tears, I can't do this, and your heart rate rises and it it all sounds totally dramatic and extreme when you're not feeling mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, when you're going through it and you're just thinking, I don't know how to cope. And it's, and it's actually it's pretty simple. Like I, I spent three or four years sitting next to a, a guy who'd studied psychology at a pretty high level um, at, at the university. And he used to just say, you know, there's X amount of stresses that you can kind of cope with. And it'll, you know, you could have five really stressful things and be coping just fine. But it's like the sixth little one yeah. could be the thing that actually tips you over the edge to feeling overwhelmed. And, you know, so it's it's just that like how much have you got on your plate and if you've got too many things then yeah the next thing that comes along is going to be much harder to deal with even if it's something that you'd normally be able to (laughs) tick off quite easily so yeah yeah. so yeah when you're in that situation yeah I think probably from my my experience as well the last thing you want to do is add an extra stress from your running or your training which is sort of supposed to be more of a relaxing outlet exactly and it was funny because I was sitting there thinking well, hang on, this time last week, you know, I was feeling a million dollars and I was feeling on top of the world and started to have these doubts creep in going, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to get faster and I've got too much on and all these like really stupid, silly things. And then I guess the more sensible side of me just said, stop, like just stop doing all these things. You know, if, if you can't run Sunday, then you can't run Sunday, just have the next couple of days off. And, you know, a lot of the time it really is just get some good quality sleep in and you know this morning I got up at 8 a.m and I had said to my husband last night who obviously saw how visibly upset I was yesterday and how exhausted I was (laughs) and I was like I'm not getting up tomorrow until I get up. So he dealt with the kids and yeah, 8 a.m. I think this is a new world record for sleep in in my household for (laughs) the last four years. And I feel amazing, by the way. Very good. Very good. And yeah, one of the other things I've been listening to is uh, a few podcasts where they've had some experts on, I I think it was actually on, it might've been on, I think it was on Primal Endurance, Brad Kearns' podcast. So he was talking to these guys, fitness experts, and one of them in particular talks about recovery in and of itself takes a lot of energy. Mm. So, you know, when you've had that sort of high stress point and you've also been training, then those sort of days off are good because they're actually just allowing your body to recover and using the available energy you've got to um, to rebuild and come back. So, yeah, I, I doubt you're going to lose any kind of fitness or anything from taking a few days off. You're just sort of allowing your body to regenerate a bit and once you're feeling more more yourself, ticking back into the training after that. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's such good advice and it's easy to give out, but it's actually sometimes really hard to implement on yourself. Yes. So, anyway, um, I, I did implement that, so I was pretty happy. But what about you, have you done anything overly exciting this week? Not really, because <laughs> okay. you know, last 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 week was the big three k time trial, and maybe I'll just pick it up from after that because I, I had a suspicion that that was going to knock me around a bit because it was, you know, a pretty solid effort off not a huge amount of training, and that sort of proved to be the case. I, I kind of already had mentally thought about maybe I'm going to need two days off after doing that time trial, and although I didn't really pull up sore, I could just feel this 
general fatigue throughout my whole body and mind. So I just pretty much had Thursday, uh, the Thursday and Friday Friday off after that. All I did was walk the dog. I didn't even go to gym. So um, just allowed myself to recover a bit. And by the time I got to Saturday, I felt well enough to hit the gym for a short session. And I got out and did an hour and a half of walk running out in the forest. So that was kind of nice. That sounds and so peaceful. Yeah, it is. It is very good. Um, and yeah, it's interesting with the walk running. Again, I've, I've been uh, tuning into some good podcasts and Brad Beer's podcast. Um, he had a he had the Canadian Olympic triathlon coach on, and he was talking about how he prescribes walk running for Olympic level Olympic distance triathletes for their long run. Yeah. So instead of giving them a three-hour long run because he knows that you know, that's going to be too stressful and too much load. He sort of gives them three hours of walk running in which you would sort of expect them to run for, for two hours. So took a bit of comfort out of that, actually. I thought, well, you know, these, these guys are Olympic-level athletes and they're doing walk running, then me persisting with a walk running approach, especially building up to maybe running the Canberra Marathon in mid-April off not a huge volume of Ks, like that's going to be my answer for getting some time on legs and trying to build up my aerobic fitness. So, mm. so yeah, I was encouraged by that. So if I can build up to doing a three-hour walk-run session where I'm actually on the move for two hours, then that should be probably good preparation. So I'd be sort of curious to see how I do off that sort of approach going forward. You're not too far away. You just did an hour 50, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. A couple of weeks ago, I did nearly two hours. And depending on how I go moving into this week, I might get out for a, for a couple of hours or more on Sunday, another sort of forest walk run thing. But yeah, other than that, I haven't actually done any sessions since that 3K time trial. I've just sort of been taking it pretty easy. And I probably won't do any sessions until next week. And that'll sort of give me two weeks before I plan on doing that next sort of 5K park run time trial mm. to get maybe two or three sessions of faster running into my legs. But yeah, I'm pretty keen to get a, a couple of these sort of longer walk runs in as well, just to sort of boost up my aerobic fitness. Because yeah, when I'm doing my continuous running of about sort of five or six K at the moment, it's it's pretty leisurely kind of pace. So it's sort of <laughs> depending on the weather. And I had one day where it was really humid and hot and I was basically running six minute kilometer pace. <laughs> and on other days where it's been a bit cooler, it's sort of, you know, 540, 540, 545 kilometer pace. Oh gosh, don't so, come up and train in then all of this is 80 <laughs> to 90 percent humidity every day <laughs> i know yeah that would that would as we've talked about yeah the, the heat doesn't necessarily agree with me that well yeah. so i have to be a bit conscious of that when i'm training yeah yeah um, but yeah i've taken it pretty easy essentially so yeah i think the week i did the time trial i think maybe i did about 32 k's or about 20 miles and this week's not quite finished yet but it's been a pretty Pretty, pretty relaxed week as well. I, th I think we're recording this Saturday morning and so far I think I've run three times for a grand total of 12 kilometres. So. <laughs> so this is so. very much a down week for you. Yeah, it is. Although I'm going to do, I, I will probably end up doing a few Ks over the next couple of days just because I've, I've got a got a little bit of downtime and I've got the time to go out and get the running and I'm feeling like you. A bit more like rested. I've rested and recovered. So yeah, I feel like I can go out and tick off some, uh, probably do an hour today and maybe do do two hours tomorrow and hit the gym as well. So yeah, carefully stepping my way towards this next 5k 
challenge that we've got going, which is going to be a park run 5K. Yeah. So. Actually, I'm, I think this month I'm going to be a bit like you. I might be uh, just having a look through the, the weekends. Um, might be cutting it a bit fine. I might be on the last weekend doing a park run. So it'd be good to see your time on the board first and see what. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm going to set a mark for you to chase down, put you under pressure. Uh, and then we come together in March. But, yeah, it'd be good. Exactly. Well, should we? Uh, well, I guess we, we've given we're talking to Keith Bateman, who's a, a Masters World Record holder. Maybe maybe we should do our topic of the week, which is: Can you actually get faster as you get older? And having having talked to Keith, I, th- I think you'd have to say the answer is probably yes. Mm. <laughs> which... I think both you and I are, are hoping that the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the answer is yes as well. And, and look, actually, I happened to listen to another interview during the week from a Canadian gentleman by the name of Gene Dykes, and he is a, a marathon runner who does sort of ultras for fun on the side, but he recently ran two hours 56 as a either a 70 or 71 year old for the marathon which is an incredible time is that a world Uh, record i think it actually is a world record although the course he did it on wasn't ratified so i don't think it's going to go into the record books but uh, yeah he's done it nonetheless and it wasn't a fluke because i think he's done another couple of sub three hour that's incredible um, marathons as well um in in that age group and yeah, he's a gentleman that's probably took up running more seriously later in life, mm. I think from probably about the age of 60. So we were sort of chatting before we started recording about the both of us have probably not got a lot of Ks on our collective running clocks <laughs> because of various either loss of interest or interruptions from injuries to our running over the years. So I think that sort of notion of, of not beating yourself too up, up too much when you're younger probably does allow your scope to um, develop your running ability and training load as you age. Mm, well, I think even, you know, I know that we don't focus on elites very much uh, on our podcast, but from an, a, an Australian scene, Sinead Diver would have to be mm. like the poster girl for getting faster as you're getting older. I think she's... Um, maybe just over 40, and is one of the best in the world. Correct, yeah. I think she she just ran a Masters world record for the half marathon at 41. Yeah, so... Uh, 68 minutes something. I, I didn't pay attention to the exact time. But, but, yeah, I think that's like about number three or four on the Australian all-time yeah, open which is just, elite women. Yeah, just completely incredible. And I even know that the like the little group that I train with here in Sydney, the majority of the runners either join out of interest a bit later or they're all sort of – everyone's – pretty much over 30 and you know I'm watching nearly you know each year people breaking their PVs and different records over different distances as they're getting older mm-hmm. so you know it's encouraging and actually I remember reading it, it's not to do with running but to do with swimming Jeff Hugel one of the world's best swimmers back in 2000s early 2000s had made a comeback into swimming and he was noticing this trend in swimmers especially making comebacks in their 30s and he was just talking about the different mentality and different types of training and focus on the recovery and that strength mm-hmm. work that had come in that was really suiting a lot of the older swimmers. So they still had that ability from when they were younger, but they were able to implement those recovery techniques to enable them to return and I guess further their career as they got older. Yeah, there's hope for us yet, Lisa. And <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm going to put it out there this year that one of my goals is to 
try. I don't think I'm going to get fit enough to break my 5k PB um, oh, gosh. in time for our challenge. And that's, Look, that's, that 5k PB <laughs> is honestly excellent. I was, I think I said that to you on Saturday. I was like, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> it's it really fast. I know. Look, yeah, it probably my best PB by, well, by a reasonable margin. I think in terms of the Daniels V dot, it's the highest one. The only other one that kind of compares to it, I think, is my 1,500-metre PB, which I did about the same time, and that was 4.48. So I think in Daniel's VDOT formula table, the 4.48, 1,500 is about equivalent to a, a 17.40-something 5K. So, yeah, those two are kind of outliers for me. The rest of them are a little bit more modest. And the, the one that I want to, want to tick off in the winter season is my 10K road PB, which yeah. is 37.48, which is still... It's a pretty good time. That's that's two nineteen sub nineteen minute five Ks stuck mm. together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the one that I'm going to try and break. Probably nearly ten years after I did it. So as a forty four year old, I'm going to try and do something better than what I was doing when I was when I was thirty four. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm going to be with you on that one. I'd love to get back into that sort of thirty six minute ten K shape as I had once in my youth. But and so I'm on the you get older, you get faster as you get older bandwagon. Sounds good. Well, should we um, have a have a listen to Keith talking about? Well, he, he doesn't actually talk a lot about himself. Um, we mostly talk about technique and coaching, but I think as you get older, and as you mentioned, working on your strength and technique and recovery and those kind of like things that perhaps you didn't think about so much when you were younger, where you just went out and smashed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's probably a good place to to start. Is um, yeah, thinking about moving as well as you can as strongly as you can. And as as the title of Keith's book is, um, Older Yet Faster. Congratulations, Keith, on the publication of your book. It's as as someone who's been through the process of writing and editing and, and self-publishing a book, it's it's a pretty mammoth undertaking. So, yeah, congratulations and, and well done in getting it out there. Thank you very much. I must say it's uh, a co-author is my wife, Heidi, the podiatrist as well. So Yes, uh, correct. I better mention that, otherwise I'll be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely, and I should have mentioned that as well. So, um, yeah, thanks thanks for picking me up on that. And the title, Older Yet Faster, I, I've, I love the sound of that, Keith, because it, it gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> now that now that I'm now that I'm in my mid forties, uh, I'm I'm still clinging on to that hope that I I can uh, uh, improve some of my personal best times, and may, maybe that's a a good segue into uh, you just giving the listeners a, a little bit of background into into your story because you're definitely a person who became older. Oh, sorry, you, you, we all became older, but you became faster as you became older. Yes, yes. Um... And that's really the whole thing about the book is how to do it. I didn't in do it do it intentionally. I've always had a um, I've always had a need to work out why things happen and how they happen. And uh, I was a, a ski teacher before I was a runner, and I was very much into um, getting people to be well in the shortest time in the best possible technique. So uh, when I came to Sydney and I joined a really good running group, uh, Sean Williams, in fact. Uh, I was getting injured a lot. I was fairly quick, 36, 36, I remember, I think was my personal best on 10K from about the age 45. 
but I kept getting things like shin sprints, runner's knee, ITB friction. I thought I had a hernia and I went to the doctor, but now I know it was hip flexor pain. And all these things were from poor technique, I now realize, uh, because I see people with these problems all the time and, and we fix them. So anyway, I, uh, with this running group, we had some uh, Olympians, uh, future Olympians in the group, and uh, they, were, they were running really nicely. And uh, I tried to emulate, worked out what was going on. I suppose it really started when uh, my friend uh, Dimitri passed me, and he never used to, and he was looking different. He'd been to see a biomechanic. Uh, I went to see the same guy. In fact, I found out later my wife also went to see the same person. And that really started me off. Uh, I now realize that the analysis was far, far, far too complex. Things like how much one hip dropped, uh, and I was given hip hitching exercises, various angles all over the place, which is interesting, but they become irrelevant when you, you work out what the main problem is. And it's very simple. Uh, and it was picked up, but not emphasized. The basic thing was my foot was pressing on the ground uh, too hard, too far in front of me. So I was overstriding. And, and as far as the hip drops concerned, um, there's a lot of extra force. You're balancing on that leg for a lot longer. So your hip drops, um, when you fix that overstriding problem, just about everything else is fixed. So, anyway, at the time, I didn't realize that, but um, I, I, I sort of incorporated some of the changes in my, into my running and, and kept working at it. And it wasn't until I actually started coaching and trying to get other people to run well that I learned the major uh, amount uh, of how to change people. Yes. So maybe that's a good, I was going to ask you the question, why you actually decided to write the book. And I'm guessing the answer is in partly in what you said about um, the level of complexity of the feedback that you got from the biomechanic. Would, would, is that a fair comment? Were you, were you trying to write the book to sort of simplify it in um, your own mind and for other runners? Uh, I, I suppose so. Although it was really what was happening was I was running technique sessions and, and uh, changing people's technique and people would write to me and ask me questions and I would uh, write an email back to them. And then a few weeks later, somebody else would write with a, a, a similar question. So I would look up the previous email, copy and paste, change it, that sort of thing. And this kept happening over a couple of years and I decided, well, I think what I should do is write it all down. And so it's much easier for me to, to find the information to pass on to these people um, and that's where the idea of the book came, putting it all in one place. And uh, then I met Heidi, my wife Heidi, um, a podiatrist who had been taught absolute rubbish at podiatry school, heel striking, big chunky shoes, was injured for 25 years, um, managed to change her technique. She's running beautifully now. And she had been introducing a system of strengthening runners with a foot program. And so the two things went, went together because I was asking her questions uh, about anatomy and she was asking me questions about technique. And we merged on, on those things um, because my clients uh, initially were, were doing too much and were getting um, things like calf injuries and, and Achilles tendon problems. And so I needed her help. Um, and that's how we came up with the, um, the initial, uh, initial book. Uh, how to actually change the technique, but how to implement it uh, as well. Yeah, that was the first edition. And then um, we watched people changing over the next four years. We had a whole load of people that we were helping worldwide 
uh, we realized that uh, they'd misinterpreted some of the things in the first edition. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we did a complete uh, revamp, the same content, but much more detailed with better explanations, uh, reviewed the illustrations. So there was no uh, uh, miscomprehension of, a, of, of, the, uh, of what we were trying to put across. So you've kind of like packaged up your philosophy and view of running technique in this book and yeah great idea that's going to be heaps heaps more efficient now that's a that's a good enough reason for for doing the book um just to stop yourself having to rewrite those emails <laughs> that's right yes one, one, of the, one of the things that having dabbled in the running technique coaching world myself is if you i was going to uh, i would hate to actually be asked this question so i apologize in advance because it's a hard one um, if if someone arrived from mars and they were in human form but had no knowledge of running how how would you describe how to run to them it's i think it's a difficult question uh, basically it's a it is actually a series of hops in good running although it's not the hop you would do stationary you're actually yes. moving so it becomes a flowing action but the quickest way from point a to point b is to fly is to is to be off the ground now that is uh, obviously harder at, um, at low speeds than walking. So what we have is two methods of, of moving over ground or along the ground. One, in fact, is moving along the ground. That's a walking action, which is great for low speeds. Um, the other is going over the ground. It's quite difficult to get off the ground, especially when you're stationary. Yep. Um, but uh, once you're moving, the fact that you can only really go faster in the walking action if you do massively long overstrides, which means your foot lands well in front of you, you you hit the ground hard, you absorb, and then you have to push hard again. Extremely hard work and extremely damaging. That's where all the injuries come from. Or you've got to run like an ever-ready bunny with over 200 steps a minute, uh, neither of which is, uh, is really uh, what I would call running. The good thing about getting off the ground is if you land correctly, that is uh, nearly vertically, somewhere near vertically aligned, your legs actually become a spring. And Harvard University have done some uh, studies here and they've managed to, they've measured about 17% uh, spring effect, like 17% of your landing force comes back to you in, in free energy, really, from the pronation effect of your foot, from the rolling uh, toe heel toe uh, and the rolling in effect of your foot gives you apparently about 17% of your return of energy uh, or can do and they measured uh, 35% from the spring effect of the Achilles tendon and the calf muscle um, yes I've heard so, that number before that's uh, uh, yeah trying that, to tap into that is got to be yeah, really yeah. important for, and, and, for and that is um, really the main feature of the book it's getting this spring effect it's uh, it's a bounce it's it, it's not like a uh if you imagine a kangaroo but going slowly there's a lot of effort and, and a laborious bouncing effect but once they're moving um it's a very graceful flowing action and and that's what we're going for we're going for uh, trying to replace the walking action with a bouncing action getting off the ground but getting off the ground with ease so uh, you have two, I've split it into two in the book, uh, the ways of getting off the ground. One is to push off your toes, which is an acceleration. Uh, and the other is this uh, landing near vertically aligned and your whole foot, the whole foot uh, lands 
and you get a rebound effect off the ground. Uh, to describe the difference between the two, uh, we've actually got a picture in the book of somebody on firm sand, and one person has landed uh, leaning back, basically, uh, breaking, and so they have to push off hard in the next takeoff, and that means that they scoop the sand out um, as they take off. The footprint next to it is like a dinosaur footprint with a very small extra uh, bit of uh, dent at the front part where they push off the front. So one person is accelerating as they take off because they've braked when they've landed. The other person has landed near vertically aligned and pushed off slightly off the board of the foot, uh, which means they've accelerated just a little bit because they've braked just a little bit. I, I don't know if that's clear to everybody or not, but um, basically if, you, uh, if you're pushing off hard when you take off, um, and you're at constant speed, you've braked exactly the same amount uh, when you've landed. Uh, I do recall that image from reading the book, Keith, and it reminded me a bit, I don't know if you've seen the film Remo, Unarmed and Dangerous. It was a bit of a really bad 1980s film, but <laughs> there's a, there's a scene that. in that where the, where the, uh, the, the master uh, martial arts teacher is trying to, trying to teach this guy to run across the sand so lightly that he doesn't actually leave any footprints. Oh, right. I, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's sort of a similar thing, but you shouldn't try to run lightly. Uh, no. You know, because then you, and, and again, and, and, and these things you should, we think the only thing you should try to do is to get a balanced landing. That's the whole focus of the book. And everything else, if you manage that, everything else you did was correct. Whereas if you try and do things like, artificially change your cadence or the amount your foot height comes up or lifting your knees or any of these things you see happening with runners who are probably running a lot faster than you it's a bit like the tail wagging the dog um, you know you shouldn't be copying these things because this other person uh, has probably built uh, different biomechanics to you they're probably going faster than you they're in a different environment and so you copying what they're doing is, is actually irrelevant, whereas the one common factor with every good runner is they land balanced, i.e. they're not leaning back. Maybe, it's, maybe we should just dive into that because, I, I, you know, for me, for me when I picked up the book and read it, the biggest thing that stood out as your sort of overriding philosophy and, and method of, of teaching running technique was definitely that concept of finding a staying in that vertical alignment that you mentioned but also the thing that really grabbed me was like trying to find the balance point for for when you're in contact with the ground essentially so uh, yes could, could you maybe yeah. just dive into that in a little bit more detail yes well when you when you land which actually is of course not instant you're on the you're on the ground for a non-zero time, as my physicist son says. Um, they are spending some time on the ground. And during that yes. time, your foot is stationary and your body is moving. So therefore, the foot does have to touch the ground in front of you and you will leave the ground with the foot behind you. Uh, that will vary with speed. What, what, what we're saying is if you're pressing on the ground in front of you, you are braking. If you're pressing on the ground behind you, you are accelerating or you could be falling over, but you're basically accelerating uh, if the foot's pressing on the ground behind you, if the foot's pressing on the ground in front of you, you're braking. So at constant speed, you really want to be in between the two. And the closest you can get to being near vertically, uh, to vertically aligned when you land, the better, because one, you're not braking, 
And two, you're making maximum use of the elasticity in your legs once you're strong and you've uh, you've perfected it. So what we see with uh, clients is they have an initial increase in speed, which they get really excited about. Uh, and that is because they've reduced their overstride. So for the same effort, uh, they go faster because they're not braking as much. And further down the track, um, they learn to land really precisely balanced. And at that point, the elasticity comes in. So if they land just slightly leaning back, very critical, they land slightly leaning back, there's a, there's a fair amount of absorption uh, of the landing force because they're the leaning back, pushing against the direction of travel. So they have to absorb that and then they push off. Now, if they land just a few millimeters back uh, with the foot, you know, un- a few millimeters more underneath them, they suddenly hit this point where rather than absorbing, they get a spring. And, and that is the final stage. Uh, and that we've calculated with a number of runners can be 15 or 16 percent improvement in speed, which is astonishing. But you only have to, at, at a reasonable speed, you only have to leave the ground by a millimeter more to increase your stride length from flying further and, and your speed. I calculated this a couple of years ago when I was uh, a little fitter. I'd, I'd done a three-minute 10K rep, and because my cadence was 186, my stride length was 1 meter 80. I did a, a, the final one at a 257, and my cadence was exactly the same, which is good because it shows I was fit, and the stride length there was 1 meter 81. But I went home and did the physics on that. Um, I hope I got, I think I got it right. And I worked out that you just have to leave the ground by oh, just a millimeter or so more in order to increase your stride length by one uh, centimeter. And at 20K an hour, that one centimeter or almost 20K an hour, that one centimeter equals 13 seconds per kilometer. It's amazing. So basically what I'm saying is your speed as your stride length is and your speed uh, from that is uh, is due to the the speed you're going at and the height you get off the ground so that's that is what your stride length should be uh, and it's very easy to increase it uh, just yes. by taking off a little stronger i think we're almost of one mind around the whole cadence thing but there's a there's a lot of people that only think about increasing their cadence as a yes, mechanism to um, improve technique and to run faster but you've you've got to make a longer stride otherwise you're going to tap out pretty quickly that's right i actually did in the book we've actually done a, a little calculation on that you know somebody who's a typical overstrider i think we said they were running about six minutes a k and their cadence was about 160 i think we we guess it's about normal and uh they had realized they were overstriding and somebody had told them to increase their cadence to 180. So that takes their stride length. I think the figures were from about 1 meter 14 down to 98 or something like that. And then we say, okay, well, run five minutes a K and then the cadence has to be 200 and something. And and really, you're only just really starting to run at about five minutes a K. If you're slower than that, then it's not you. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the technique because uh, if you're running technically well, you really cannot avoid um, reaching five minutes a K in your warm-up. It's just unavoidable uh, if, if you don't break when you land. But one more thing on the cadence there for anybody who's listening is we, we've measured it uh, with our groups when we're running, and it is below 180 uh, when we're below five minutes a K, and I yes. think it should be. Uh, once we reach five, for me, once I reach uh, five minutes a K, uh, my cadence ticks over at about 180. 
Yeah, I measure this okay. afterwards, not not, not while I'm running. Um, mm. Never measure your cadence when you're running. Uh, and then when I reach about mm, four, four and a half minutes a K, that sort of time, it reaches about 185, 186. Uh, now, the interesting thing is if I'm really, really fit, it will stay at 185, 186, right down to about 245 a K. Uh, because what's happening is my stride length is increasing because my speed is increasing and I'm maintaining my height in the air. Uh, no, that, that's good. You're really maintaining um, yeah. the same cadence and but, but increasing that, yeah. your stride length significantly. Yeah, I tried that the other week in a race and I wasn't fit. I went far too fast in the first K. My cadence was about 185 and 86 for the first K, which is about 305, far too fast for me at the moment. My second two kilometers were 320 and my cadence was 197, I think. Mm. So what was happening there was I, I was too tired to get off the ground. So to maintain the speed, I had to do more steps, far less efficient. Yes. Uh, but, so, but what I'm saying there is your cadence will vary according to the speed and how fit you are at the time. Uh, and when yes. people look at these top runners and they measure their cadence as 185, 186, they are in top form. They are very fit. They are very strong. And they're probably running a lot faster than you. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So um, it's not a good measure. It's a, it's a very poor measure. A few years ago, I did a, um, a blog article where he looked, looked at cadence and I tracked my cadence at various speeds compared to runners that were a lot more talented than what I was. And you could definitely see as the speed increased, they were able to maintain speed without their cadence going through the roof where I sort of reached a, you know, as it sort sort of got, and I was a bit fitter back then, as it sort of got closer to kind of 315, three-minute K pace, my, my cadence was starting to go off the charts well yeah, into the 190s. Exactly, and exactly. and that's, that was my obviously my ceiling point. I just couldn't, can't run any faster yeah, than yeah. that. So um, it's a very poor measure for most runners. Mm. Uh, it's a very uh, a very poor thing for somebody to tell somebody to do. It's, it's just no, it's one of these things, there's no real thinking goes into it. Same thing as uh, lifting knees. You see Usain Bolt, his knees will be way off the ground, but he hasn't lifted them. He's, he's bounced off the ground and his whole body has gone up and then his leg has folded, so his knee has gone up even further. So his knee is very high, but if you get somebody who's not running as fast and it's not naturally happening and they do it, it's just a waste of energy and lean back and start overstriding. So mm. it's a similar thing. It's, you know, this whole thing about watching, uh, watching runners who are, doing, who are in a different environment and a different fitness level and try to copy what they do and hope that, you know, uh, you'll be able to do the same just by performing one action. Yes. Unfortunately, we can't all be Usain Bolt. That's right. <laughs> um, could I just circle back around on something you said before around five-kilometre or five-minute-kilometre pace? Yes. And not being able to avoid running faster than or around five-minute-kilometre pace yeah. if you're really starting to dial in your technique. I, I guess... Uh, I'm not sort of disputing what you're saying there, but the, the vast majority of the running public, five-minute kilometre pace is actually going pretty quickly. Like, you you know, average finishing times for the marathon are more around sort of six-minute kilometre pace yeah. at around the sort of four-hour, four-hour ten mark. So how do you get around, I guess, the question, and I'm back going through this process with myself at the moment, like I, I would probably rather run at five-minute kilometre pace for all of my running, but I'm simply not fit enough mm-hmm. to do that. How do I kind of balance running well with actually doing enough volume to get fit, to maintain running well for longer, if that makes sense? Uh, well, uh, the first thing is if you change your technique, you have to go way, way, way back in your distance and start doing two or three K at a time because uh, you're going to start using different muscles, muscle groups, um, 
specifically to start with the calf muscles are going to get uh, a lot more use because you won't be wearing a shoe with a drop in it because if you do you'll be uh, switching off your glutes and you'll be be forced into a walking action uh, so your calf muscles are going to get a lot more use and they need time to build up so uh, that's going to reduce your distance and then we recommend that people just build up gradually according to that so you could be talking uh, you know a year program but if if you what you've been doing what you're doing now is is not working and you're getting injured then now's the time to stop and reset for the rest of your life but yeah you have to build up gradually and we recommend that um, once people are running 25 minutes for 5k which is it's is just about everybody should be able to manage that uh, once their technique is good, as I say, it will just happen. Then, uh, then you can think about uh, maybe going longer to 10k, uh, and then when you've got your 10k time, uh, it's pretty good. But then think about a half marathon, and then once that's you know you've done a few of those and they're really getting good and confident, then you can you can up it to a marathon. But most people, unfortunately, do it the other way around. So they don't have the they don't have the technique, they don't have the fitness to hold a technique anyway. If they if they did have it. Uh, and so they they end up doing long runs running badly and they get very good at it and yeah it's a shame but you know uh, if you look back to the 70s 80s and you you see the average times for marathons were a lot faster I can remember my first one was oh I'm at 248 and I was about 400 and something in the race nowadays if I a 248 would bring you you know fairly well up the front yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't I think, think there were as many t- runners. In the top in 100 at the Melbourne Marathon with a 248 for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there were as many runners then uh, mm. as there are now. Anyway, uh, the, the standard you see, if you just look out, if I'm in, I, I was injured sometime ago and I was just, I, I, my Achilles tendon problem, and I was just jogging along the beach and I'm running at six minutes a K and I'm passing people. It's a shame um, that these people don't uh, maintain what they had in their youth. So I see I'm down by the beach, which is great. I, we see kids running and they run beautifully across the sand, across the concrete, even across stony paths, you know, it just doesn't worry them. They just run beautifully. And yet how big gripe is shoes when they go to school, they, for some unknown reason, or well, probably Clark's shoes, they need support. Um, they don't need support. Uh, it just weakens the feet and uh, changes the whole body shape. And they don't need a raised heel in the shoe because that's going to bend their back and switch the glutes off. And then the little athletics have to wear shoes, which are usually chunky. And so they're really up against it. I've had some children, uh, uh, seven or eight-year-olds, parents come along and uh, want to uh, fix their technique. I say, just take the shoes off or get uh, a pair of waffles. And uh, that's basically all you need to do at that age because they, mm. they, you know, uh, unless you want to get, you know, later on get refined things a little bit. But basically to the younger kids, that's really all you need to do is to get them standing vertically and uh, they'll, they'll start running well. Things are probably changing a little bit, maybe not completely or fast enough particularly at the um the kids end of the spectrum in terms of well yes yeah, you either have being uh, able to wear, run barefoot or at least have shoes that are uh, designed with yeah flatter shoes with less cushioning for for younger kids yeah i mean the cushioning is just uh, the cushioning just raises you up off the ground so you're more, you're less stable the as my wife says the uh, heidi says the the most stable thing is the ground and the closer you are to it the better but what happens with the cushioning is it makes you unstable. She gets a lot of problems with Achilles tendons because of the torque hit force. If you raise something up and then start moving side to side, you know, the base is moving. You're, you're going to put a lot of torque there on the Achilles tendon, and that causes a lot of problems. But the 
as far as um, overstriding is concerned, you, you, that cushioning needs to compress and it needs time to do that. So you need to be on the ground longer to give the shoe time to compress because if you were to land it underneath you and it compressed, you'd fall over forwards. So obviously what you have to do is you have to land the foot further in front of you, which is a braking action. And I remember seeing a study the other week that, surprise, surprise, the thicker the shoe, the harder you hit the ground mm. because you have to land it further in front of you so that it compresses more. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, this uh, protection from the ground. Having said that, uh, you do need, if you've got anything at all, because you lose the feeling between your brain and your feet, which is a very fast communication, uh, if you're running barefoot, fine, concrete, anything at all, it really, you won't hurt yourself <laughs> uh, unless you stand on something, which is unlikely because your eyesight improves once you take your shoes off. But if you've got a cushion cushioning in your shoe four or five meters uh, millimeters you need up to about 10 and the reason you need that is because you lose the feel you can't judge the landings properly you tend to land a bit heavier so if you put just you know sort of two millimeters between you and the ground it will affect uh, your sensation you will land harder and maybe the two millimeters isn't uh, isn't enough to uh, to cope with that so it's, it's it's strange you need nothing or five millimeters we reckon i think I'm, I'm probably like a lot of people i've i've dabbled in barefoot running and very minimal shoes with with no cushioning uh, and look I, i'm not i'm not sure i don't think i'll ever be someone who would call himself a barefoot runner or someone who'd be able to run in shoes with with no cushioning. And maybe that's just a case of I spent too much time as a kid growing up wearing Clark's school shoes. I, I laughed when you mentioned that because I remember being sent off to schools in, the, in those horrible hard school shoes and running wow. around in the playground and feeling feeling sore just chasing after balls and whatnot but yeah i don't i don't think i'll ever be able to go back to be a full-time barefoot runner and i have noticed like you that if, if i'm putting shoes on i do need a bit of extra cushioning which kind of leads me to the question about whether is it actually possible to run with good technique wearing your tradition and i'm using inverted commas commas when i say traditional running shoes because that's changed a lot over the years but i've seen a lot of good runners who seem to move pretty well and run well yeah i think wearing, there are two things wearing here. shoes i'm a highly gabriel selassie had to relearn how to run he said when he had to put shoes on you know, mm-hmm. he won his first marathon there's certainly a place for shoes yeah i'm not suggesting you run barefoot everywhere i, I don't run barefoot everywhere i have shoes yes uh, I feel that as you run faster, if you run faster, your heel doesn't have as much contact with the ground. So if you have a have what's a, the perfect landing, you'll be slightly on the outer ball of the foot, just marginally, and then the whole foot would come down. You get that spring effect as your heel, you fully extend your calf and your uh, Achilles tendon and spring back off the ground again. Well, at higher speeds, that doesn't happen as much. Your heel doesn't kiss the ground you know, quite as much. And a, a shoe that you're talking about does have a drop in it. So I, I'm thinking that that drop doesn't have quite as much effect uh, for the good runners who are getting higher off the ground than the poor runners. Mm-hmm. Are you with me? So it's another thing yeah. about that might be all right for fast runners uh, who have good form already. That's, that's my thought on that. I'm still thinking on this one because of course, these runners are already good runners. A lot of them are good track runners, and they're used to having flat shoes, and they adapt. That's not the same as somebody who's running a six- or seven-minute K trying to running them. They're not going to get there. 
they're going they're not going to get off the ground in them and therefore they're going to be walking along the ground and probably end up heel striking or realize that's bad and then start prancing on their toes instead and so i think it's one of these situations where you know i wouldn't go and drive a ferrari race car because i'd probably crash it <laughs> yeah uh, because i don't have the skill or uh, to do it and i think that is possibly it the drop really at slow speeds and low speeds and walking around really screws up your technique and your back and uh, as well you, you you can't land your whole foot underneath you because the heel gets in the way so you can't extend your achilles tendon and your calf muscle fully to get a spring off the ground and if you don't have the spring off the ground, your only other option is to walk forwards. Mm. And of course, if you've got a raised hill, you're going to be in a semi-squat position when you land. I, I, actually, I think that might be the other thing. You see, when you're running really fast, there is an optimum speed if you're running well, at which point, because you've taken off high off the ground, your foot falls and it falls backwards in relation to your direction of travel. So there is a point where your foot will actually land at zero kilometers an hour in relation to the ground. Mm -hmm. That would be different for everybody. Now, past that speed, if you're going faster, your foot is going to land on the ground moving slightly forwards, which is going to be a braking effect, uh, which is, I think, why you see these top runners on the track with a graceful shoulder motion. Now, that'll be a little brake and a push. Yeah, Rather than gliding along, they're actually having to really work it at their top speed so i'm thinking that at a higher speed you have to push more because you you know your foot is breaking you a little bit so you have to push more and maybe the the the, the, the slight drop in the shoe is something to push off mm. you know yeah um yep. but again I, i'm pretty sure that um, I, I know that for, for for low speed runners people learning to run well a drop in the shoe is very bad you really mm. are going to have difficulty I think one of the things I found when I was first playing around with modifying my technique nearly 10 years ago now was that the very, very chunky and the very stiff kind of shoes I found were pretty counterproductive. And oh, my, the, the thing that I sort of took away from that was because I couldn't really feel what was going on on the ground, uh, I was having diff difficulty activating essentially all, the, all of the muscles that you use when you're running. So you, yeah, absolutely. the whole extension yeah. chain. Yeah. Um, and I, I found even with not necessarily going to a completely flat shoe, but sort of getting into lighter weight shoes that were a bit more flexible and had less overall cushioning bulk. I could feel what was going on a bit more, which allowed me to get those bigger muscles working yes. um, yeah. a lot more effectively. So it was kind of like I sort of found, I don't know whether it's a happy medium, but there, there was kind of like a sweet spot, I suppose, for me where I, I had enough shoe rather than too much shoe, but I probably still need, I, I still did need some shoe to be able to kind of run effectively. Yeah. Well, when I run in shoes, um, I have to go faster before it starts feeling good. If I haven't got shoes on and I run to the park, you know, I start feeling good in about 500 meters. But if I've got shoes on, it, it's at least a K and a half. Yeah. Um, you know, before it starts feeling fluid. Yeah. But the thing about the drop in the shoe is, as uh, Heidi pointed out, that pushes your knees forwards. So just on mm -hmm. stance, that pushes your knees forwards, which you, then your backside goes back and your and your head goes forward. And you've got this um, sort of concertina effect. So your body's bent and you are not uh, engaging your postural muscles. I can't remember the actual muscles around, but around the, the core and around mm -hmm. the, the lower back and the glutes, they just switch off. And you're, you tend to emphasize the uh, the quads. So you get a lot of people with a, an imbalance. Their glutes mm. apparently don't fire. Or they don't fire because they're not using them because they're standing in or running and landing in the wrong position. 
So all you need to do to get your fire to glutes, uh, your glutes to fire is to hop up and down on one foot, make sure your heel lands. And there they are, they're working, otherwise you'd fall over. So, uh, you know, the, the actual angle on the shoe will, will prevent proper use of your, actually of your hamstrings and your glutes and your postural muscles further up. So uh, we've actually got a chapter in the book about how to get a hot runner's body. And it basically, you follow rule number two in the book, which is stand and land aligned. That is, get flat shoes for everything you do and uh, work on landing aligned. And then we see within a, a few weeks, people's uh, glutes start to work and their core starts to work. And you don't have to go to the gym. You just have to be upright. So we're very much against the drop in the shoe. My, my suggestion is learn to run really technically well and then play with shoes if you want after that. But copying what the market gives you mostly at the moment and hoping that it's going to, you're going to be able to um, uh, improve your running that way is, is, is a bit of a loser. I'm going to just go backwards a little bit now, Keith. Could I just sort of go back to this notion of um, overstriding? Oh, yes. Yeah. One of the things that bugs me a little bit is there's a there's a lot of people out there sort of coaching and they try and describe that you can actually land or your foot actually landing completely underneath you. And I must admit, when I was reading your book, I thought, oh, no, this is another one of those. But then I turned the page and you actually had a lot more clarity about what you meant by the initial point of contact versus um, where you actually come to yes, what, yes. You, know, you would call that, that well, stance phase yeah. of running. Yeah, it's and impossible think, for your foot to yeah. land underneath you when you're moving. You, you can you, if you're you, stationary. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, you just go up and down moving, on the spot. Um, you're going to fall over on your nose. Um, yes. So there has to be some contact with the ground in front of you but it's a matter of degree. So that's why we don't say land completely vertically aligned. You won't, you know, and it's a progression. What we're trying to do is get you as balanced as you can be, and you can feel that. So it's not prescriptive. It's, it's, it's about feel, not, func- uh, not formulas. So, so for, you, for you, what I took out of it was once you're in that sort of full stance phase when the full weight of your body is on your foot and hopefully your foot and calf is completely loaded, that at that point you'll be in this vertically aligned posture is that sort of what you're getting at that's right but yep. um we might not be able to see it but you can feel it and you'll see it in your once you reach that point you'll you'll suddenly uh, your times will suddenly improve and uh, you'll have done no extra effort to to achieve that and that's because you've you've managed to get enough strength and and your brain is now educated your muscles tendons and ligaments to work in the right the right way so that you actually get an extra spring off the ground but it is it becomes a feel we get you to we get you to the point where you're close and then we give you tricks to put yourself off balance and back on balance again so you can find uh, the best point for you because your body shape might be slightly different but the one common factor is landing near vertically aligned near balanced so balanced landing is the common factor in everybody and it will be slightly different for each person but we give the readers the skill to to be able to experiment to find that uh, you know when you're running along it, you, it, uh, if you just um, lean back a little bit and you'll feel your feet a little bit further in front of you then you tilt the whole body forward don't bend over at the waist and you'll feel you start to accelerate start to accelerate because otherwise you'd fall over so you naturally have to take off a bit stronger and then you just ease your body back a little bit again to try to find that bit in the middle and if you keep just trying that adjusting that and you feel you take it to the finest point where you just feel a little pressure on your uh, towards the heel bone, a little pressure towards the forefoot, and then pressure on the whole foot. Eventually, you will find 
the sweet spot where you start floating. You think, ah, oh, this is it. So I suppose what I'm saying is we're not we're not prescriptive. We're giving people the skill to get very close to the balanced landing, and then we're giving them exercises to uh, experiment to try and find the right the right spot. And and some people some people uh, uh, prefer some exercises to other exercises. So we just have to try them all and see which ones work best. Maybe that's a good time to talk about these mental cues and exercises that you've, you're now alluding to. Mm-hmm. Look, this, this is something I've played around with as, as well, but how, how important or, and also describe how you use that in your coaching. Is it to give people some little mental games and exercises to play to try and stimulate a feeling of something different that they haven't been able to experience before in, in their running um, or their movement? Yeah, I think the, uh, the feeling something different comes in lesson one, really. Uh, we're just bouncing up and down stationary and, and getting the whole foot to, to contact with the ground. So I usually get them just to bounce up and down and they do it on their toes. So what I say is, well, well, let's relate that to an acceleration where you're pushing off the forefoot. And then I get them to land on the heels very lightly and they go thud. So I say, say, well, okay, let's say that's a heel strike. So if you're on the heels, your foot's landing in front of you, you're doing a heel strike. If you're on the board of your foot, your foot's behind you and you're accelerating, we want the bit in the middle. So I then get them to feel both the ball of the foot and the heel touching at the same time. And the interesting thing is when that, if you have a group and you look around, everybody is perfectly vertically aligned. So that is the feeling we're looking for when they're actually running at uh, a low to moderate speed. So that's really the feeling that they get right from that beginning. And we keep that feeling because when we accelerate, we accelerate very gradually. So we're not too much on the ball of the foot. You probably, you don't even notice it. So we keep that whole foot landing throughout the whole start sequence so that's the new feeling and then it's a matter of trying to keep that feeling when you're running and that's where these uh, and little extra- and in terms of like the the mental games and using different cues to achieve a similar outcome maybe maybe you could talk through the i think you've got three different ways for running faster that you describe oh for acceleration yes. and and they're all intended to kind of yeah. they're all intended to achieve the same result but you actually get there by using a different mental yes cue. that's right yes uh, so as far as acceleration is concerned although uh, yeah although uh, for acceleration three things happen. it's a bit like throwing a stone you extend your stride length in the same way as you throw a stone a bit further if you throw it straight up it comes back down on your head you throw it too too far along the ground it skims along the ground which is a lot of friction yeah, it's about 45 degrees i think is for ballistics for missiles so you want to throw it, throw it a bit further so if you're running along and you were to tilt your whole body forwards. I say whole body because some people just bend at the waist and then they stick the leg out underneath them and in an overstride. So if you tilt your whole body forwards, you fall over or you take off a bit stronger. So instinctively, we take off a bit stronger. So two things have happened. Uh, you've tilted the body forwards and you do that when you're running, obviously by instinctively leaving your foot on the ground a bit longer. Really, all you have to think about is tilting forwards and and that will happen. But your foot will stay on the ground a bit longer. Your body will proceed forwards. Then you will be forced to take off a bit stronger and you will extend your stride length. As you go faster, your foot gets left further behind you and you get more of a spring effect. Uh, I presume that's through um, through the hamstrings. But what happens is as you go faster, your foot springs up more and it, it goes, the foot goes higher off the ground. So three things happen. It's a a tilt and a push off the ground harder and your heel rises. So in actual fact, you could use any of those three movements to accelerate. If you, what I do with most customers, and it's it's probably the best is I trick them. 
uh, we just got ourselves moving and I get them to tilt their body and they start to accelerate. That's good. And then I say, go a bit higher off the ground. And they try to go up and suddenly they accelerate and there's a, their eyes go, oh, what happened? Because it's totally unfamiliar. And that is the best way of acceleration is just actually just put a bit more effort into it. Take off a bit stronger, take off a bit higher. You won't actually go uh, the interesting thing is you try to go straight up, but unless you sort of trick yourself by leaning back first, <laughs> you don't actually go straight up. Because there's a time delay, if you want to go higher off the ground, you have to bend down in order to push up. Mm-hmm. And since your foot is on the ground and stationary and you're moving, your hips are moving, when you decide to go down, while you're going down, your hips are going forwards. So you're tilting forwards. So when you take off, you don't take off straight up. You actually take off up and forwards. So, and, 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 and the same thing is if, if, you, if you tilt the body forwards, you have to take off stronger. So they all work together. But what I'm saying is psychologically, you don't really want to be lifting your feet up. You don't really want to be tilting the body too much because people tend to bend over at the waist when they do that. So the best thing for acceleration is just try to go a bit higher off the ground. Although some people prefer, some people, uh, like if they a big overstrider, uh, a hill striker, for instance, raising the back foot is actually quite a good trick because when they're raising the back foot, they can't be throwing the other leg, they can't be throwing the leg forwards. For some people, you just have to judge it, but for some people, that's, that's a better one. But for generally speaking, the best way to learn to accelerate without overstriding is just to take off the ground with a little bit more effort. Just tell yourself to take off a bit stronger, go up a bit. It's quite amazing how, how much acceleration you get from that. So listeners are probably having the same mental gymnastics that, that we're both having, trying to describe movement just with words. So I, I like I like what you've done in your book, which is to actually, A, you've got a, a bunch of images to illustrate what you're talking about, but you've also got a series of videos, haven't you, to explain yes. these concepts yeah, and lessons. Yeah. Well, in fact, I've, what we've done is basically recorded lessons. So everything in the book or everything relevant in the book uh, has got an equivalent video uh, including all Heidi's uh, foot strengthening and rehab exercises, uh, all those. I think probably about forty altogether. I can't actually remember. I can. Uh, <laughs> I might. It's need, quite a few. <laughs> might, I might need to look it up. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking up now. There are introduction lesson one, two, three, four, five, six, five, five running hills. I just went through them. We've got key lessons introduced. Uh, lesson one is landing. Lesson two is taking off. Lesson three is accelerating. Lesson four is Keith's Game Changer, which is a special exercise which really gets things moving. Then going for a run and how to check your form, what should happen, like with the cadence and that sort of thing. Uh, Basically, leave it alone. Uh, Running hills. And then we've got some of those exercises that uh, I think we spoke about, about maintaining good form. One called the pendulum, one called the acceleration lander, one adjusting your back foot, various other ones. Anyway, there's there's, there's one, two, three, four, about 40 or 50, 40, 45, I'd say, I guess. Yeah, so... Yep. It's uh, some people are more visual. Uh, the illustrations are excellent, though. We had a superb illustrator, and for the second edition, we redid them all simply because, in some points, the toe was pointing down a bit too much, and it looked as if you should be putting more emphasis on the ball of the foot than you actually should. Simple things like that. So yeah, the videos and the illustrations, and we also have an online group which has now got over three hundred members, and people put up questions and problems, and uh, Heidi and I get in there and answer them but we're, we're, we're finding more and more that the uh the book readers and the um the customers who've been through the process are actually answering the questions exceptionally well um, nice one yeah it's really, a good little community of um of learning going on there it is yes yes and, and this is one of the things about the second edition we spent four years watching and listening and seeing what mistakes people made 
and then we've catered for those in the in the second edition. People were doing crazy things we didn't expect. Somebody stopped during their run and started doing Heidi's foot program. And they carried <laughs> on with their run and they started to get cramps in their feet. And we, we were intending them to be completely separate. Um, we didn't think of that. So in the second edition, we actually put a line in saying, these are completely independent to your run. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there, were, there were things like that, that somebody um, uh, put a comment on the book, but but be prepared. This book is only for people who can run faster than five minutes a K. And that, that was complete misinterpretation of what we were saying. So lots of, uh, of things like that we picked up over the four years. It's very difficult to explain something uh, and expect people to do exactly what you expect them to do. Even in, in sometimes in running sessions, somebody particularly somebody who's pretty uh, very pedantic in their, in their nature, uh, I'll ask them to do something and they'll do it. And I'll say, oh, no, that's not actually what I meant. You did what I asked you to do, not what I expected you to do. <laughs> I don't know whether you have that situation sometimes. It can definitely happen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link up the, well, a link to the electronic version of the book because I, I bought it from Smashwords. So oh, I'll link that right. up. But or where can people find the book, either electronically or physically, Keith? Uh, right, probably Amazon for most people. Where are you? most of your listeners all over the world? Probably half Australia, about another quarter or a third in North America, and probably the same for Europe. Right, okay. Uh, well, I would point you to the UK Amazon site because we've got five five-star reviews on that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the others haven't reviewed yet. But really, Amazon will have uh, – we've now got uh, three different versions. We uh, the, the book is um, a full-color uh, edition, and it's very nice. Uh, but the printing costs are six times what, they, what it is for black and white. We didn't realize that for black and white interior. Now, fortunately, all the illustrations were designed to show well on a Kindle, which is black and white. So when I, uh, one of my Indian Facebook friends said, oh, we can't get the, the printed copy here. I found a, a print-on-demand company in, in India yep. and they produced it. But they said, oh, this is far too expensive. So I then looked at a black and white one and the printing cost was ridiculously low compared with the other one and enabled us to put one out to it. India and to get it distributed through the shops there as well. So, and, and still have a few dollars. And then I thought, well, why don't we do the same thing with the Amazon? So now we have, if we're talking US dollars, we have the most expensive one, which is the, uh, the color edition, which is $50. Then we have the black and white interior, which is really, really good, I have to say. And that's $29. And the, then we have the Kindle version. And of course, your Smashwords ones, they're all about the same. I can't remember what they are, about $9, something like that. Yeah, um, we've also changed right. the front cover and made people aware that it includes the online videos. Some people were looking at the book and didn't realize that, you know, we'd put all this work into the, the videos as well. So, uh, so that all helps. So there's three versions, um, electro- two electronic, that's one smash words and uh, I, uh, iBooks and that sort of thing. Uh, the Amazon Kindle. And then there are two, um, two other black and white interior and the color interior. If anybody has any problems, then um, we, we can uh, uh, we can distribute them from here as well in uh, in Sydney. I sent one to Sweden yesterday and uh, uh, one to uh, Hong Kong before that because they they uh, they have some trouble with you know Amazon doesn't work everywhere. So, so the listeners probably got the idea that you Keith are quite a speedy runner, but. Uh, people may not be fully aware of your story, but you're actually the the world record holder for a number of age groups 
from about 50 up. Is that right? Uh, well, no, actually just the one age group. Um, just the one age group. Five, yeah. Uh, ah, 55. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm 63 now, so I haven't actually been competing much for quite a time, but uh, a few, uh, uh, well, the book has taken a lot of time, I have to say. Um, yeah, I'm fairly quick. At the moment, I'm running probably, I'm running a 17 to 17 and a half for 5K in the park runs. PB for that is 15.29. That's when I was 56, I think 55. So I did all my really good times when I was 55. And they were all personal bests except for the marathon at 2.43 or something, which is a two, two, two minutes slower than my best in 1984. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was at the end of a, a week's competition. So I have to say that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I've got the, uh, the, still got the records actually. Nobody's got them yet. Uh, and the 1500 meters, the mile. 3,000 meter, 5,000 meter, and 10,000 meter for the 55 plus age group. I do intend to go for the 60 age group. I just haven't had done the consistent training yet. And so your so your 10 10k PB. I was trying to remember what it was the other day. Is it uh, about 30, 32 for 55? Yeah, 31.51.86. Right? Whoa. Yeah, that's fairly moving. I was very happy with that one. It's fairly moving. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably my best ever of any distance. That's yeah. And so just just for context, my ten k PB, which I set nine years ago, is thirty seven forty eight. We can bring that. I down. thought I thought that was. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i would like to bring that down uh, keith and i i I, th- I think i could run a bit faster than that oh yes um, for sure for sure my my uh my pb was 36 36 at age 45 yeah so uh but uh, it's amazing what yeah. you can do when you change your technique yes uh, uh, most people just think you've got to push harder or train. but if you've been doing that for a couple of years and you're getting injured and you're not getting much faster that's what we suggest the time is to stop reset rebuild and you'll come back stronger and faster yeah we've got one uh, person case study number one actually in heidi's podiatry section uh of the book case study number one is someone we know and he was prescribed orthotics uh, for flat feet at the age of eight basically destroyed his running at uh, years he's 45 now it's taken three years to strengthen him up and rebuild him but we saw him running two weeks ago and he was looking like a an international five uh, uh, international 800, 1500 meter runner. We can yeah, see right. nothing wrong with his technique. It's absolutely perfect. And uh, he can run 10, 15K with shoes or barefoot. And he's yep. looking great. So uh, I'm not going to tell you his name at the moment, but uh, his, <laughs> his personal best, I think, was 35 for 10K, uh, running very badly and getting injured all the time. And I, I'm fully confident he'll get down to 32 and mm. probably go further. And uh, uh, just because he's running so well, you know, he's, he's running 10K and he's automatically going up to sort of 315s at the end and without even realising it. Super speedy. So uh, speaking of things that are wrong with um, technique, I sent you a video of me doing or an edited video of my 3K time trial that I did oh, um, right. last yep. Yep. last week. Yep. So I was just wondering whether you had any feedback for me on what you saw in those um, those seven seven lap segments yes, that I edited I to together. Find, I did look, didn't I? Did I, say, did I send something back? I did. I, I think you did send me a couple of comments yes. here and there. Ah, yes, I'm just recalling there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, um, it, it's, it's actually a lot improved from when we saw you uh, and you're moving in the right direction. Only one thing you can do wrong when you're running, that's either to lift or swing your leg forwards, which you're doing a little bit of, just a little bit of. You were doing a lot more. I remember on the session, uh, you did it a tremendous amount. Uh, and I actually, I looked at the videos of the session and the video you sent me, 
And uh, yeah, it was a lot better. You look very smooth, which was good. Yep. Um, yep. A bit, uh, a bit saggy. Yeah. Your hips were a bit low, and you were swinging your leg forwards a little bit. So those two things go together, really. So I think what I was suggesting you you did was um, simply just try to stand a bit taller. And mm-hmm. um, your cue, did I say the cue was to uh, leave your? I think you were lifting your lifting your knees yeah, slightly. Lift, That's right. I think your cue leave your foot was, on the ground. Just leave your foot on the ground a bit longer and let it. Mm-hmm. Not let it drag behind you, but you want something mm. in between the two. You don't want to lift it, but you don't want it to drag. You know, it's that relaxed sort of letting it follow. But I think in your case, if you just leave your foot on the ground a bit longer, yeah. it will actually put you in a better position. So stand tall and leave your foot on the ground a bit longer. Just try those two little cues, but you were certainly looking smooth. And, and you did 3K in, what, 11 or something? 12, 12 minutes, exactly. 12, yeah. 12, yeah. But you're looking really, really relaxed, you know. So yeah, all, all you need to do is to is to get that refinement so that you're better balanced and then uh, you'll break less and um, start taking off more, and that should easily come down to three thirties and, yeah, and beyond. Three thirties, three thirties, where I want to get to because I, I did manage to get to that before when I did my first round of um, improvements, and then I've kind of lost my way a bit in the mean, meantime, and now just trying to dial back into. I'm sure yeah, it will that, come. It's just one, just from looking at it and looking. Oh, that's really smooth. Now, what's wrong here? You know, why isn't it faster? And then you can. You can see. So when you say leave your foot on the ground, when you tell me to do that, I think another way of phrasing that or the way I think about it is actually what you want me to do is actually extend my hips a little bit more strongly and powerfully because if I, if I, if I load my foot and leave it on the ground a little bit more firmly, then that's, it's almost the same thing, at least yeah, in my I mean, mind. I mean, not necessarily firmly, but don't pick yeah. it up mm. is what I'm thinking. Yeah, or, or don't cut your hip extension short. Maybe that's a better way of phrasing it. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, I never, I never talk about hip extension personally because, well, I just never, never see the need from the way I do things. Um, yeah. I feel that I mean, some people talk about getting their hip extension right, but you know, if you're running well, uh, your foot gets left further behind you as you go faster, and so your hip extension is right. Unless you're doing a correction, the way we're talking there, you're going to have enough hip extension because you've trained yourself to get gradually faster so as you gradually get faster your foot gets left further behind you so you get more hip extension so i think in some people's cases trying to improve their hip extension is very much like trying to improve their cadence or their knee lift or Mm -hmm. these are things that should happen automatically but i know a lot of people do talk about hip extension i just don't see it i don't see that i I see it as a result rather than Mm. something to try to achieve yeah uh, unless maybe you're a you're a, a hurdler and then you will want to be stretching in all sorts of directions like that for your hurdles mm. this is one thing that i will never be yeah. keith is a me hurdler. Too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> do do not do not have the flexibility no, no. Uh, for, the, for those kind of games or, or yeah things. that's right no, no, I, I think i could jump over those steeples that they have for the uh the junior the junior people oh yes that would be but now i'm over 60 the hurdles are lower <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe you could take it up now. Uh, no, I don't think I'll, I'll go for that. Uh, yeah, I like to run with the. I like to run with the young boys to try and pull me along. That's uh, that's nice. Excellent. And, and uh, I'm kind of getting getting towards um, the end of the conversation, I reckon, Keith. But is there anything else you wanted to kind of throw in or, or mention? Oh, not really, except to to be uh, to, to, if you are changing your technique, it's it's 
it's a long-term project. In fact, if you have a link to um, this person, uh, David uh, David Blackman, I'll give you the link afterwards. He uh, he changed his technique. We met them at Southampton, and we he uh, in the UK. He changed his technique together with his coach and blogged it. And we used a lot of that information for the transition section in the book, mistakes that were made and doing things too quickly and that sort of thing. So you do need some guidance. You do need somebody there to um, to say, no, hold back, hold back. I know you feel great, but, you know, don't run too too far. Don't jump, you know, don't run before you can walk. So, yeah, you need to be very careful uh, with the changes because even a small change in technique has a big effect on the muscle use. Yes. yes, shifting load around to different places that are not used to it. Yeah, I had I had one customer who was it Neil Berry, uh, who was running I think thirty minutes for ten k, and we did one session with him. Uh, his coach, who's my coach, said that's fine. Five weeks to go yet before the ten k race, and he reported back that after six k, his calf muscles felt like they were exploding. So you know, obviously, I only changed him a little bit, but um, it made a massive difference. So that's the big warning: is you've got to give yourself time to strengthen your feet, which are probably weak, uh, strengthen your calf muscles, strengthen your glutes, all those things. Uh, Heidi's program is excellent for that, and actually, just getting into the right shoes and um, is going to start the process as well. And look, I remember when I was putting together advice around transition for my book years ago, and. I think I had between three and six months as the advice, so it's kind of it's nice to have you saying at least that long or maybe longer as a as a project. I was just trying to think, well, yeah. how how most people are pretty impatient and they want results straight away, so um, it's trying to come up with a number that would be sensible enough to allow people to transition safely. But um, um, yeah. you probably can't can't allow too much time by the sounds of it. You have to you have to go by how you feel. We can't give mm. a, a specific time. It could be it could be a year. It could be for in the case of our friend who had those. It took it's taken three years, but he was the weakest person we've ever seen because he'd been in orthotics since the age of eight. So, uh, but David Blackman, he took about a year. I'm just trying to find his bit in the book here. Um, he took about a year, and in 15 months, he really started to uh, to go well. I think he did a at 52 or 53. He did a 207 800 meters, which was a personal best. Uh, but mm. it took him about 11 or 12 months, as I recall. Um, and he, he's still improving though now. So, um, yeah, you've got to you. I can't say how much time, six to 12 months, I would say. But the good thing is you should see improvements in speed, although you're running shorter distances, you'll see natural improvements in speed pretty early on. And, and that, that's very encouraging. Um, the discouraging thing is if you do too much too soon and you and you pull a calf muscle and you're out for three or four weeks. No, that, that would definitely be discouraging. Thanks very much, Keith. That has been a Thank you. very interesting conversation. So I appreciate you taking a bit of time to have a chat to me. And, um, yeah, thanks again for the coaching session that you gave to me and Lisa, Lisa up in yeah. Sydney and uh yeah also for for having a look at my video and giving me a bit of a bit of a critique on my my early progress in my 3k time trial yeah, well, it's so always good for somebody else to have a look from the outside yeah it's difficult yourself to know but having said that once you learn the skills um it, it is easier to self uh self-correct yes that's right we're lucky we're living in an age where we're all carrying around a high-speed video in our pocket yeah, very with, the, with the smartphones. Yes. Yeah. Very handy. Good. Well, uh, thanks very much, Keith. No, thank you, Brian. Nice to talk to you.
What's coming up for you in the next week, Lisa? Yeah, look, not a lot. I've got my – it's actually the Masters Championships, which is quite good timing given that we're just talking about older yet faster. Hang uh, on. Do you qualify as a Masters? Aren't I you do. only 34? <laughs> I do qualify. So in New South Wales, they do it from 30. So uh, Actually, I, I, I must admit you might, you'll probably remember this because I think you came along and took some video of me that I competed in a Masters thing when I was about 34. Oh, was your lap scorer? Uh, you are my lap scorer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it was a bit embarrassing because I was competing as a 34-year-old and I think I won a medal. I came second, but I was I was a long way behind some of the 50-something-year-olds. Um, uh, so I think I ran about 1830 or something that day. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so, you, yes. I've only ever done the Masters. I actually did it last year as a bit of a toe in the water after having a you know, terrible year of post-pregnancy and being quite sick. And it was actually a really nice environment. So, just really encouraging. It's actually amazing to see some 70, 80-year-olds and they're out there and they have a go at everything. So I'll just be doing the 5K and then after that next week, I'm actually just going to be doing a lot of easy running, to be honest, so nothing special. And what's your what's your plan for the 5K? Is it essentially the same as the Ex- partial plan that you executed? Oh, exactly the same. And I've had a look at the entry list and I don't really recognise a lot of the names, which I'm not surprised about um, given it's the Masters. There is one lady that's running who I think her PB is about 17 and a half. I will not be chasing after her. I, I don't think she's quite in that shape, but it's actually going to be a good run to really just focus on doing your own thing. It'll probably end up being a bit of a time trial. Everyone sort of gets spread out quite a lot. There's a bit of a range from you know, that lady that I mentioned, 17 and a half, probably up to even 30 minutes. So um, a bit of a time trial, but also just an event to really get myself comfortable and you know maybe get a bit of a tick on the board for that 5k sounds good sounds good what about you well as mentioned i'm going to try and get a few more k's into my legs and at some stage in the next week i'll I'll probably sneak out a couple of those um, little sessions so i'll try and do some tempo pace work maybe i'll do some two or three minute efforts interspersed with some walking and probably do another set of 200s um, if the body's feeling good at some point just to keep my legs turning over the kind of pace I need to do to put you under some pressure in this 5k (laughs) challenge oh gosh well I've got my 53 second buffer but you know what I think I'm going to need it I'm still pretty nervous when you get onto that track I reckon you've got that old muscle memory from uh, (laughs) the times Uh, that you were running so I need the buffer I'm not I'm not sure that you really do need the buffer Lisa to be honest (laughs) anyway I guess we will see (laughs) Very good. Excellent. Well, we might wrap it there. You have been listening to the Running Technique Tips podcast with Brian Martin and Lisa Biffin. We'll be chatting with you again next week.